good morning, everyone. We're having too much fun here in California dealing with cold air and how we have to uh, utilize technology to recover from it. So we are in Hebrews chapter 3, and before I kind of reintroduce us to the context, let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, we left off in chapter 3, um, right around verse 15. And again, to regain some context, I think it helps us to understand that what seems to be the case, and increasingly will seem to be the case, is that the congregation or audience to which the author of Hebrews is writing is one that is tempted to apostatize from Christianity and return to Judaism. So all his argumentation is based on, don't do this. <laughs> Judaism is inferior. Um, it was rather, and really here we're speaking even about the Old Testament, it's inferior and it's abrogated. It's set aside or put away because its whole point and purpose was to point to Christ. Christ has come and fulfilled it all. Christ is the greater high priest, the greater king. He has the greater covenant, and in him we will find our rest. So then what we're doing is just, with the author of Hebrews, making a case, and it's not to take away all of the nuance, intricacy, and interest of his argument, but we're seeing how Christ is set apart from all other human beings as the divine Son of God. We're seeing how God speaks to Christ in a way that he speaks to no other human beings. We're seeing that Christ, who is incarnate and made, in that sense, even a little lower than the angels as true man, then excels all of them to where all heavens and, and all the authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, and the angels bow and worship him, him being this man, Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh, the divine Son of God. And then from there, we're going to see how he is, uh, you know, he, he fulfills the epitome of the high king of Israel, the high priest of Israel. Um, he is the new and greater Moses to whom uh, Moses just merely hinted and pointed. And then we get into this argument that begins in chapter 3, verse 7. Of course, Hebrews just loaded with these little tiny details that are of such great importance to us, uh, right in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then the author of Hebrews goes on to quote Old Testament scripture, specifically Psalm 95. So, this idea that the Old Testament scriptures, thus also the New Testament, are God-breathed, are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and in fact are the words of the Holy Spirit, Traces all the way back to the first century with the author of Hebrews. We as Lutherans continue that proudly. All right, and then as he introduces this argument, which extends for some time, and it's a, it's a complex argument, it's a difficult argument, and there's even some room for us to just be like, I don't know exactly too precisely what it is he's referring to, but I certainly understand the general sense. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, no. Just choked on my own spit. Not a good start. 
Pardon me. <clears throat> yeah, easier to say that than have everybody assume that I just suddenly became plague infested. <laughs> By the thing that shall not be named. Yeah, lest we get stricken from the internet. Okay, so <laughs> this argument that he makes um, on the basis of the Old Testament, we should note this too, that the way of the New Testament is to make a case. What we're seeing here is sola scriptura before Luther says it, you know. This is the argument that if we're going to make a theological case, we're going to do so from the extant scriptures, which for the New Testament authors, that's the Old Testament. And so here he's making his case. Now, there's two words we want to pay attention to because these are the words that kind of expand and contract. And these words are the words today and the word rest. Those are the two things we want to keep track of because these are the, these are kind of the low chi that he's playing with in terms of theological concepts. And that will, again, we'll see the definition kind of expand and contract, be more concrete here and less concrete here, more finite and understandable, more uh, infinite and or nebulous. So just to pick up there so we have the full context. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, all of this is a referent back to what happened in the wilderness when the people were disobedient to God. They heard his voice. They knew it was him, but they hardened their hearts in rebellion. True enough, God was testing them in the wilderness. They failed to the test. And in fact, it, kind of ironically, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test. That's the hubris of this generation that was taken out of Israel. Their hubris is such they even put God to the test. Let's see if he's a true God or not. Will he give us, well, you know all the times in which the people did this that's recorded in the scriptures. Will he give us water or did he lead us out into the wilderness to die of thirst? Will he give us food or did he leave us out, lead us out into the wilderness in order to starve? And so on and so forth. Okay, now they saw his works for 40 years. You can think back to Exodus, you can think back to Numbers, you can think of all the miraculous provision that God did for his people. They saw all of this, but still they believed him not. Still they rebelled. And then God says, verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation. And I said, um, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, rest is a loaded word because it reminds us of the Sabbath day. And this is where the, you know, again, it's like, well, what is what precisely does he mean by rest? They shall not enter my rest. Well, historically, God struck, God struck a number of them down, so they won't enter his rest, whether that's the next Sabbath day <laughs> or whether that is the uh, promised land. Okay. Um, and as the author of Hebrews is going to kind of make mention here in a minute, or whether that's heaven itself. All three of those could be true for those whom God struck down immediately. Now, 
for those he didn't, for instance, remember when he says that it's just this generation. I can't remember the exact uh, age. I think it's everybody below 20, if memory serves. Um, everybody below 20 will get in. Everybody above 20 will not. Okay, well, in what sense do they not enter his rest? They don't enter the promised land. And this is a type of them not entering heaven. So I'll let the author of Hebrews lead us there. But already you can see how this language of they shall not enter my rest is theologically freighted. It's a loaded term. What's the point of quoting this? Verse 12, the author of Hebrews now says to his congregation, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, uh, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to apostinate, to apostasy, to fall away, as the ESV has it, from the living God. What is it to fall away from the living God? To return to death. He's the living one. He's the one whose life. To fall away from him is to have death, just as they died in the wilderness, so you will have eternal death. And those are the consequences. So he is likening that generation of those who saw the miracles of God and despised them and disbelieved him in the punishment. He's locating his congregation, his hearers, within that saying, this is you. Don't be this way or judgment may fall upon you just as it fall upon, fell upon them. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Okay, now we've got reference back to verse 7. And this uh, this was kind of the second word I asked you to pay attention to because it similarly kind of expands and contracts. It's a theologically loaded word. So, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Isn't that a delightful kind of contradiction? So, what is today? Well, go back to verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. So now, what's he saying? He's saying it is still, quote-unquote, today. It is still the day of salvation. Every day is the day of salvation until it isn't. <laughs> so, do not, um, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, you are hearing through my lips, through my pen, the living voice of the living God instructing you not to fall away, instructing you not to harden your hearts. So don't. And that, and that exhortation is then given to one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a great phrase. The deceitfulness of sin. We could probably spend the next hour fetching out all that that could mean. But yeah, I mean, suffice it to say that Sin has its own kind of nature and energy. That's why St. Paul in Romans 7, it sounds confusing to us because we're used to laws being, you know, like ordinances. Penal Code 7.036-091. But there's also, we can also speak in English of laws like the law of gravity. 
What do we mean by that? We mean like the way that gravity behaves, right? Um, so when St. Paul talks about the law of sin at war in my members, he means it like that, like the force of sin. That sin, it would be, it's, it's very difficult for us as 21st century Western people and thinkers to kind of find a category in our minds for this. But it's, it's that sin has its own nature. You can almost perceive sin as kind of an organism living and moving and having its corrupting influence, you know, like a virus that takes over or something like that. Um, so this idea of the deceitfulness of sin is that sin grabs hold of you, kind of dovetailing with our conversation in the earlier class, grabs hold of you, replicates and multiplies within you till you go from going, oh, this is bad, this is evil, I shouldn't do this, all the way through the progression of, um, well, it's not so bad, it's uh, it's justified in, to a certain degree to, um, no, this is normal, this is normal. No, nobody should criticize me for this. You know what? They should not only criticize, they should celebrate. And we go down that slope. So the deceitfulness of sin, very concretely, how did the deceitfulness of sin work in Israel? To the point where they were accusing the just and holy God of sin. In their own sins. Of leading them out in the wilderness just to die. Of forsaking them. Being untrustworthy. When of course it was they who were. So, yeah, all of this here loaded it together in this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. And again, what's the point? So just zooming out, not losing the forest for the trees. Exhort one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, that is the day of salvation, the day before we've fallen into apostasy, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now the author of Hebrews spelling out in his own words what I've been describing. And for those of you counting, that's the third use of today in short proximity. Um, again, the idea here is that we belong to Christ. If you hear Christ's voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't apostatize. Don't turn away from Christ and be destroyed in the wilderness of this world. Interesting here to consider for if we have come to share in Christ... Um, if this is referent already to um, entering his rest, a speculative point. But you do know that Christ says, Come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. And so it may well be that the author of Hebrews is playing on that theme already. All right, verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt led by Moses? Now, here is a, a point that St. Paul makes um, in Romans, in Galatians, and uh, a very important thing here we see in the author of Hebrews as well. So, who are those who left Egypt led by Moses? What would you call that group? Israelites. Yeah, Israelites. Um, what else might you call them? God's people. Bingo. So both of those answers are great answers. So everybody being led out by Moses is 
Israel. They are Israelites. They are God's people. Who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? God's people. Israel. Alright, what do we see then? Already, even at this point, we see an Israel within Israel. We see that not all of Israel is, in fact, Israel. Not all who are called people, God's people, are, in fact, God's people. Do you see that distinction already being made here? It's an argument that St. Paul makes, that what distinguishes God's people from those who are not God's people isn't the external conglomeration or gathering, but rather faith in the heart toward God. So, a parallel would be to this, and we all know it's a sad fact, not all who call themselves Christians are Christians. Not all who sit in the pews on Sunday morning are in fact there because they entrust themselves to Christ. So, we see that there's a church within a church, there's Israel within Israel, there's God's people within the group so-called as God's people. We see that being spelled out here. So, what? how does this work rhetorically? Don't say you're God's people just because you're behinds in a pew. Don't assume you're safe. Just because, from unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin and apostasy, just because you go on Sunday morning and sit with the faithful. Um, that's the rhetorical effect and punch of this argument. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? You know, reflecting probably those times in which God immediately struck some of the people down for their wickedness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now you can see here, if you, especially if you read this in light of 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul addresses this problem, you can see that some of the problems that were taking place in the last years of, of Israel and the minor prophets are taking place again even in the first century. How does it go? If we read this together with 1 Corinthians 10, it goes like this. I don't have to listen to you, Pastor. I don't have to do anything that you say, I can live however I want to live because I'm baptized. Because I have the Lord's Supper. Or because I belong to the people of God. I'm part of the church. How is it then in James? Remember James? What is he run up against? He's run up against people who see their brothers and sisters, their clothing failing to the point of being lewd, starving and hungry, and the Christians won't care for their brothers and sisters, clothing them and feeding them, and why? What's the answer they get? I don't have to do good works. I'm justified by faith. And so what precisely is James's attack? Demons have such faith. 
And if that's your idea of faith, then faith apart from works can't justify whatsoever. So your faith is hypocritical. Your faith is no faith. Your faith is a faith which does not justify. So we can see in James, we can see in Paul, we can see in Hebrews that already in the first century, there was this, this idea that the reformers would identify under a Latin phrase called ex opera operato. All right? And it means by the working of the work itself. And what that means is in the Old Testament, hey, we can live however we want. Unrighteousness, injustice, corruption, idolatry, whatever. As long as we offer God the right sin sacrifices at the right times by the doing of the work itself, ex opera operato, by just performing the perfunctory, God has to forgive us and we're good. Go on sinning that grace may abound. Ha! <laughs> All right, and then we see similar arguments being made now with the sacraments and with one's identity as, I'm a baptized child of God. I'm a member of the church, the new Israel. I'm God's people. And so this is now what he's attacking. Like, don't think that you can't apostatize. Don't think that your apostasy will simply be forgiven. Don't think that you can see the sword coming and say, okay, well, not a Christian. All right, did it pass? Christian again. Uh, and that's that's what's um, at, in play here and in concern. We're going to see this argument kind of build up into chapter 6, and you'll, you'll see why if you're reading the text this way, I don't think you're going to have any problem with Hebrews 6 and what he says. He's warning them, look, you can't apostatize and come back. Just like that. God isn't mocked. It doesn't work that way. It more demonstrates an unconverted heart present tense that you would even consider such a thing. All right, so that's we're kind of working through the rhetoric here, but... Why, why were they unable to enter the promised land or rest as it's been called here? And the reason is because of unbelief. So no amount of identifying as church, no amount of sacrifices or sacraments or things of God um, can make up for the fact that if you simply reject him and rebel and apostatize, that's that. That's what you've done. It's very much analogous to what Jesus says in Mark 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So, what would be an ex opera operato understanding of baptism? I got baptized. That's my ticket to salvation. That's my uh, insurance policy. And now I can do whatever I want to do, you see, because I was baptized. Did God not promise to wash my sins away then? Hey, free ticket to do whatever I want. No, that would be unbelief, and unbelief condemns. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned, you see. All right, into chapter 4, which is an artificial break, because we continue on largely with the same argument. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Now, he's brought this to his first century hearers, and then by extension to us. So what is this promise of entering his rest that still stands? Well, now rest very clearly means eternal life. Whether that's conceived of as the intermediate state of heaven or the new heavens and the new earth isn't particularly important for the argument. The point is that it is still the day of salvation. This judgment has not yet befallen us. So, again, hearkening back to the earlier verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay. So, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear 
lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, what is that? That's saying, look, we should, as another place in Scripture says, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Until we've entered that rest, until we've crossed that threshold, we should walk in humility and repentance, or in the language of Hebrews, in fear. So this is the pious approach to our everlasting rest. Now, fear is different than doubt. We're not doubting God's promises. We're not doubting our salvation that he's declared to us in baptism, in absolution, in the Lord's Supper. That's not what's being taught here. What's being taught, though, is that we fear lest we seem to have failed to reach it already. So this is repentance, being humble, etc. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. All right, let's pause there. So, who did the who did the good news? Who did the word of God come to? Um, all, as all the people were being led, well, you can either do it in Egypt before they were set free, or even after they were set free. Who did it come to? That good news came to all of them. But immediately, there's a bifurcation. There's a there's two different categories. Good news came to them, but they, namely the unbelievers, heard it and it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with the others who listened. So what's the argument here? Be careful that even though you're in the church, you're not a member of the false church. That you haven't slumped into unbelief and the deceitfulness of sin. And you're on your way to apostasy. As soon as that comes, you're going to wither up and show that you have no root and lose the growth, lose the faith that you had or thought you had. All right, verse 3, for we who have believed, now that's a collective we, all of us who have believed this good news in Christ Jesus, we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, the unbelievers, shall not enter my rest. What's the implication and argument the author of Hebrews is making? It's only they who will not enter the rest. The rest, namely, those who have believed, will. And that's why he's so confident to say, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. Now, you can notice that the tense shifts to kind of a present tense, or at least a theological present tense. And that is kind of the fluctuation here and the challenge here, because there's a sense in which, and Kleine kind of pushes us in that direction, but there's a sense here in which rest simply means right communion with God. Receiving the Lord's Supper rightly, coming unto Jesus' present tense, come unto me, ye weary, and I will give you rest. That rest in the forgiveness of sins that faith grasps hold of is kind of a foretaste of heaven. It's even heaven here, um, now, but not yet, <laughs> not fully. And so there's, you know, I, I've got no problem here. I'm not trying to make this more difficult than it is, but I've got no problem here if you, if you see a little bit of fluctuation in this word and you wonder, How much is this talking about now versus how much of this is talking about what's yet to come?
No problem. Plenty of room for us to contemplate that here. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, the unbelievers, shall not enter my rest. Although his works, okay, this is the Lord's works, were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day. I love this line because this is how I quote scripture all the time. Somewhere the Bible says, <laughs> For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now you can see how things are getting complicated. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, which is, again, no particular day. It's just the day of salvation, okay, spread out over many of our days. Today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, this is going back to verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. All right, well, quite complicated, isn't it? Quite complicated because you have... You have Israel in the desert, you have David's treatment of that, you have Hebrews' treatment of that, and his treatment of that to the first century, and then you've got how we ourselves hear that today. So that, if it sounds complex, it's at least because you have those four reference points there. Now, I think helpful for kind of fleshing out the argument and trying to more understand, like, line by line what he's after, as best we can, is if you look at the footnote on uh, verse 2 of chapter 4, and let's just read through that together, along with the footnote on verse 3. And this will help us gain a better sense for uh, the specific argument. All right. In, ref in regard to the phrase, good news, for good news came to us just as to them. The study note says, The promise of rest to the people of Israel through the gift of the land and to the church with the gift of new life in Christ. Okay, so we can see that. Um, and then in regard to this phrase, united by faith, which we see at the toward the end of verse 2, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here the study note says, By faith we receive the promises of God and become members of his household. Trusting in God's promise, we receive the gifts that God gives. Here's a quotation from Luther. These three, faith, the word, and the heart, become one. Faith is the glue or the bond. The word is on one side, the heart is on the other side. But through faith, they become one spirit, just as man and wife become one flesh. Therefore, it is true that the heart is combined with the word through faith, and that the word is combined with the heart through the same faith. Beautiful statement. 
And then what about this ver um, in verse 3? So we're just kind of moving along through the text, kind of looking at the difficulties, those things that hang us up. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, so we're going to pick up on those two themes here. In regard to the phrase, enter that rest, the study note says, prefigured by the promise of a new life for God's people in the promised land. This promise is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, who gives us an eternal home and rest. What about this statement, his works were finished? The study note says, this focuses on God's seventh day of creation as God's rest has existed from the foundation of the world, so his people throughout time have been free to enter this rest and peace. All right, so this takes us all the way back to Genesis. And remember, God spends six days creating the heavens and the earth and all that's within them. And on the seventh day, he rests. And that is a, that's a weird kind of statement, even in its own right, even if we had nothing but Genesis and the fleshing out of that term rest. And in fact, um, at least several of the church fathers, and I think Luther's one of them, if I'm not mistaken, see in this already a promise that God has a kind of telos of his creation. As his creation was created in six days and then he rested, so all of creation is going to follow a pattern up until it reaches its climax of a Sabbath rest for all. Okay, and, and now I know for sure it was Luther who's in, in agreement with this because I learned it from him in his Genesis lectures. It's all coming back. Um, so his point, and he's standing on the shoulders of a number of church fathers in this regard, is that God, in creating Adam and Eve and creating the human race and earthly life, made it good but not perfect. And God foresaw that that life, this earthly life, without sin, would progress to the spiritual life of which St. Paul refers in our bodies, and yet a spiritual life where we're not in any way dependent upon the things of the earth. Okay, so a progression of humanity. We obviously fell away from that progression on account of sin. So God is restoring us to our birthright, namely that which was ours from the beginning. Right? That helps us see that, you know, Christ isn't like, 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 um, eternal life with Christ resurrected in our bodies, um, in our bodies forever glorified with God in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. That this kind of vision isn't something that happens like, like, oh no, they fell into sin, what do I do now? I guess I better create this whole new reality um, and this whole new plan. No, it's more like they fell away, they can't possibly be restored to the original plan, the original birthright and progression. What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son to put them back on the path. As And this is sometimes called in Irenaeus the recapitulation, capitus or capital head. And so Adam was the head that led us away from the purpose for which God created us to eventually evolve into saints, holy ones. Um, and 
Adam as the, as the first head led us off of that, so Christ comes as the second head and brings us back to what God's plan was from the start. So, I mean, all of that's rather complex, but I, I think that this helps us see why it is that Luther, Irenaeus, some of the other church fathers in between, viewed even that first allusion to after God does six days of work and then rests, they see that as indicative of the patterning, not just of the week, but the patterning of the entire age to come that culminates in the rest of all creation with God, or all humanity with God. Does that make sense? I know it's quite nebulous. I've done the best I can. Sorry for that. Um, Okay, let's pause there. Let me sip some coffee and stop thinking so hard. She's Louise. And uh, you can let me know if you've got any questions or any confusions, and I'll see what I can do in way, by way of answer. I have a question. Uh, you know, I think we've been over this, but I seem to forget. Uh, for the casual reader, uh, this verse back there in, uh, you know, that refers to do not harden your heart, uh, that seems like a work. Mm-hmm. And then you made another reference to work out your salvation. Mm-hmm. And then believers listen. You know, another, and I know it's by grace we are saved by faith. So how do you reconcile these verses and what, what, uh, how do you see that working out in the Christian life to not harden your heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally see these, um, as just, they're not, dogmatic technical statements where we're talking about, hey, let's distinguish between grace and works. Let's distinguish between monergism and synergism. I don't see that as the point or the category in which these kinds of scriptural statements are are thinking. I see them rather as descriptive, almost, if that would be the top-down, you know, if if you'll work with me by way of analogy, the top-down would be you're saved by grace through faith apart from your works. You can't do anything to convert. You can't do anything to keep yourself in the faith, you have no, and we would all agree that that's true. From the bottom up, the experiential would be like, well, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Now we're not making clear dogmatic distinctions so much as we're being descriptive of what the Christian life is like and feels like. And we're going to hear him say, strive to enter that rest. We're going to hear, you know, I think it's Peter say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're going to, we're going to hear this language of activity. That's what it is from a user standpoint. There's a battle and a spiritual warfare. And what we do, even when we're engaged in all that activity, that, that striving and that, that um, participatory language, even while we're doing that, we're confessing nonetheless what we know to be true. That we are justified by grace through faith apart from our works. That God is one who justifies even the man who does not work. That he is the God who justifies the ungodly. Okay? And we recognize that that is, that the gift of faith is given to us and is sustained in us and is all passive. But we recognize too that as soon as that faith is attacked, the active side of faith kicks up and clings to God's promises and strives to overcome the principalities and powers of darkness. Again, all through the power of Christ. So beautifully put by St. Paul. I think he says, like, be patient while the God of peace crushes Satan under your heel as well. I mean, what a beautiful statement. Um, but yeah, the, so the scriptures are filled with this non-technical, non-dogmatic, not from on high, but just experiential language of what the faith is like. 
and what it actually feels like to go through it. And that's, that's the category I put it in. And it, there's no real need to try to reconcile these two things. You know, what would be the inference? The inference would be that the scriptures everywhere contradict themselves. That St. Paul couldn't even make up his mind, whether it was passive or active. Um, so I'd kind of think that those are ridiculous conclusions. And again, I'm not saying you're asserting that, but I, I see that as kind of ridiculous conclusions. So I think it's far more just an accurate description that we would all recognize um, as being true to what we all experience. Did you have a follow-up? I, I just had a... what is helpful to me in this, uh, at least the image. I, I picture when I was two years old, we had a um, grass yard, a hot summer afternoon, and my dad had the garden hose running. Mm-hmm. And I was this little boy running around, and I would know when I would come under the hose, I would receive the cool, you know, comfort and so forth. Mm-hmm. Then I would run away and I would get hot. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it's like coming to church. You know, we receive the gospel and and you know word and sacrament it's like that garden hose for the two-year-old yeah that and i don't think that's work but i know where uh uh that is and uh, i you know is that image uh yeah it might be helpful to articulate it in some ways i i mean it was reminding me a little of something augustine said now i (laughs) It's such a great, it's such a great axiomatic kind of principle or distinction that Augustine makes that it's been loaded with everything from prayer to Christian life to everything else. But, so let me just paraphrase Augustine and give him the credit and, and maybe uh, contour it to our specific discussion. Augustine would put it this way in this paradox. He would say, live as if salvation depended upon you. Believe, that is to say, know that it entirely depends upon God. That's the kind of paradox we're up against. And I just think that that's honest to the scriptures. You know, the only other way to handle this is you can, so you can go, the scriptures speak in a monergistic way and in a synergistic way about the Christian life as a whole. That is, we're justified by grace through faith apart from works. That would be the monergistic way. Um, strive to enter that rest. That would be the kind of synergistic way. All right. Scripture speaks both these ways. What do you think we can do with them? Well, there's three options. One, you can say it's all monergism. I'm going to get rid of the synergism. And that's the way of modern Lutheranism. That's the way of 20th century Lutheranism. So you go like this. You go, well, strive. Let me see how I can contort and flip this into actually being like the opposite of striving. Let me, let me do a little theological abracadabra for you. Yeah, sorry. That's just not appealing to me. Uh, not into it. We call out everybody else when they do their theological abracadabra. Why on earth would we? Okay, so what's the other option? Well, we're going to get rid of the, we're not going to get rid of the synergism and just try to read monergism everywhere. Now we're going to get rid of the monergism and try to read synergism everywhere. Ah, oh, welcome to Rome or the East. Ah, perfectly at home. They just say, yeah, it's all up to you. Duh. Of course, God's grace comes and helps you along the way, but yeah, it's all up to you. Strive. Get in. Ah, is that right? No, that's not right either. So what am I going to do? I'm going to hold both intention. I like the monergism and the synergism. Some people want to come swinging in on a rope and say, well, the monergism is justification and the synergism is sanctification. I'm just not entirely convinced by that, but I would say, okay, if that helps you sleep at night. 
Um, I just I look at it as they're just doing two different things. There's two different categories of thought. And oh, wh- where do I get that from? I get that from the Bible itself. I get that from the single a single author who's not ashamed in the one place to say we're justified by grace through faith, saved entirely by Christ apart from our works. Now work, darn it, and fight and wrestle and crucify the sinful flesh and wage and put on the full armor of God because you're going to battle battle and this is a race and a wrestling match and um, you're a soldier, not a civ- civilian. And on. It's the same guy who says both. What's the implication? That he doesn't know what he's talking about? Or that, or that both of what he says is absolutely true? And we need to take both in on its own terms. That's where I'm at. I'm with thinking St. Paul and the rest of the scriptures no more than me, than I do. And I'm simply going to conform my theology. And, and as with all theology, I'm going to hold these two different things in tension. That I know I'm saved completely by God's grace and apart from any works. But the scriptures also tell me, strive to enter that rest. Yeah, exactly. It's any active language in the scriptures enduring, wrestling, fighting, running, persevering, striving, um, working out. It's all the active language in the scriptures as applied to the category of attaining salvation. Yeah, I, I've just got no problem with that. What What is being described there is what we all experience. We all know in our hearts the other side that it's God doing all the doing, and that if God withdrew for a second, we'd all apostatize and be lost. That's So that's not in quite, we don't have to read these things as if they were even in tension with another. One's telling us what it looks like from heaven's vantage point, just clear as day that this is all God, and the other's telling us what it looks like from earth's vantage point, from our experience. Strive, wrestle, struggle, run, fight. Oh. All right, please. You know, we all have friends and acquaintances here in, here in this church and other places that we see this um, apathy, or the, the word I like is acidia or... Acadia, mm-hmm. uh, this apathy towards the gospel and Bible study and uh, this working out, striving, all the stuff you're you're talking about, and it seems to me that Hebrews is speaking pretty pretty strongly to the point that this isn't acceptable, and yet we kind of acknowledge their. Uh, the way they're living, and and you know, it's not they're not in gross sin, right? But they're not striving; they're not doing anything. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a real conflict. So I don't know. Scripture speaks strongly about it. Should we speak strongly about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great point because what if we look at it like this? The scriptures are diagnosing two different maladies. So what is one malady? that I would have the pride and arrogance to think that the reason I'm in heaven is in part because of me, and the reasons Jones isn't is because of some deficiency in him. <laughs> you know, so, so I can beat my chest and boast. That's one malady that the scriptures are attacking. God would have us be humble and not exalt ourselves. But what's the other malady? Well, exactly what you're describing. And it's just the, it's the seesaw, it's the teeter-totter or the yo-yo of the human psyche fallen into sin where it's like, okay, well, it's all up to me and I'm going to do this and get the credit. Oh, no, it's all in God's hands? Okay, well, I'm going to sit on the couch. Let me know when I'm saved. Or, do, or don't you dare, don't you dare contradict me. I'm saved. I was saved back in 1974 and I don't need to lift a finger now. And anyone who tells me to lift a finger is a wretched legalist. Right? So, so those are the two extremes, right? And then you got everywhere in between those two extremes. So, so the scriptures are attacking both of those maladies. 
No, you can't be proud and arrogant. It's an entirely God and by grace through faith apart from works. No, you can't be slovenly and lazy. Get up, strive, work, put on the full armor of God, fight, run, etc. Um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's very well said. And we can see how God has, you know, in the human condition, we have these two maladies. We can see how God's word addresses both. And then, I mean, how foolish for us to sit there as God addressing these two maladies and go, I think I detect a contradiction. Right? Which is, you know, again, what, what much of, um, what much of Lutheranism in the 20th century has really tried to do is, I detect a, a tension here. Let's turn these into dialectics and then one negates the other. And this is the law gospel reductionism we've all wound ourselves into. How about if we reject all that way of looking at it and just go back to the scriptures and let them speak? And when it says strive, I'm not going to be embarrassed about it. And when it says by grace through faith apart from works, I'm, not going to be embarrassed about it. I'm going to let these two stand. I'm going to say, they're not contradicting each other. They're just talking about two, di- they're just looking at the elephant from two different angles. If you look at an elephant from a trunk, it has tusks coming out of, if you look at it from the back, no tusks, right? That's, a, that's effectively what we're talking about. All right. Was there anything else? I see a hand up here. He's referring constantly back to the wilderness. And I'm wondering, you said the way your perspective, because these knuckleheads in the wilderness, they're complaining, and you said it's their perspective. And that in the wilderness, their perspective was skewed somewhat. They, they said, you're going to starve us to death. That's a lie, because they had cows, chickens, and all this other stuff with them, because they offered sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And so everything they said was deception because they had gold, they had everything. So they, so it, that's. You see the deceitfulness of sin winning its way. God's providing for them and the deceitfulness of sin they think they lack. Yes. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. And I think that it, that ails us a little bit here, here in the West too in present day. You know, another thing to point out, um, apropos of your comment would be, um, look at verse 9, and again, we're in the middle of this. Um, oh, no, excuse me, it's the end of verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Now, verse 9 is not to go without, I mean, just by passing, where your fathers put me to the test. I mean, so there's a twofold test going on here. <laughs> um, so we learn in the catechism where we pray the petition, lead us not into temptation. We learn that God leads no one into temptation, and James says this in his epistle as well. But God, that doesn't mean that God doesn't put us to the test. Okay. Now, it's not our place to put God to the test. That's the sin you see happening here. We want to avoid that sin for sure. But we need to remember that it is within the prerogative of God and within his nature to put his people to the test. That is a very helpful way for perceiving why what God was doing in the wilderness with those people. Just in an overarching way. Okay? Will you believe me? I set you free. I did these miracles. I did this. Will you believe me? When will you believe me? When will you believe me? Okay. There's an important way for us to think about that too, because I think sometimes we look at the trials and afflictions that befall us and sometimes seem to befall us randomly or by chance. And we're immediately want to say like, well, I don't understand the meaning of this. What if the meaning of it is it's a test? What would be wrong with that? What would be wrong with perceiving this as a test? And then what would it mean to pass the test? 
to endure it while retaining faith, to maybe even proclaim in the face of it God's goodness, and to love God with um, all our heart, mind, and soul to the best that we're able with the sinful nature clinging to us. Um, in, a, in a very same way, we see Christ tested, don't we? And we'll touch on this here in a minute. We saw Job tested, right? Um, Abraham tested at various points. Moses tested at various points. Remember the test of David? Remember the testing of Moses? You want to destroy this people and start over? <laughs> yeah. It, so I think, I think, by the way, just, I mean, in passing, and we're kind of taking this little verse out of, out of the context and out of the rhetoric, and we're thinking about it more broadly now. But that's the point is we need to re- recover this thing that, that this is our wilderness period, and God is in fact going to put us to the test. And sometimes we need to, it's very helpful for us to perceive those things in the life of, God isn't against me. This is an opportunity for me to demonstrate my faith over and against. This is my, this is my ability to pass this test, right? Yes, sir. Oh, let me get, yeah, let's get you the microphone quick. I'm wondering how we might cleanly articulate the difference between testing and temptation. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It seems to me that maybe temptation, we could say, is specifically wrought by the devil to make us fall, Mm -hmm. whereas testing worked by God is more intended to enrich, increase, drive us back to him. Ultimately, strengthen faith. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's a fair distinction, that um, temptation would be to destroy faith and testing would be to uh, strengthen faith. I think that that's a great distinction. I think the complexity gets involved, and this was kind of my initial thought, was when Satan uses temptation and God transforms that into testing, right? And so you've got, you've got some layers there. Um, I'm thinking in, of Job. Um, God, uh, it is, it is, of course, Satan that goes up to heaven and, and has to get God's permission to afflict Job. And then as Job is being afflicted by Satan and tempted to apostatize, even still we would say God was so in control that this was a testing of uh, Job. So anyway, that's the complexity involved. But I think that's, a, generally speaking, a fine, fine distinction. Yeah, thank you for that. When Job died, God made Job, correct? Yes, God made Job. Okay. He gave him his character and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. when when Satan came up, he told Satan, have you seen my servant Job? Mm-hmm. So he already knows Job was going to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he already created him. And he knows his character and he knows his other things. So he knows us. I'm not opposed to that reading and, and uh, yeah, that and the implications thereof. It's the same thing with Jesus. And so we see Satan effectively defeated by Job, and Job is a type of Christ. Um, now, Job's not without sin, even as he overcomes Satan through faith in God. Um, Christ is. And so in that respect, Job points us to the only one who does conquer Christ, or conquer Satan, or Christ, right? Yeah, and that's... Um, by the way, that's coming up not this Sunday, but next Sunday as we... Um, go into Lent, the temptation of Jesus and his defeat of the devil. So we'll be able to look at that. But Yeah, I, you know, again, I think it's fruitful. It's always fruitful to return to Scripture, to return to the ways that the Scriptures speak, to not be embarrassed by those ways, and then to embrace them into our perception and embrace them and integrate them into our theology. 
that is sola scriptura. Um, to let the word of God say what it says and to give our amen and assent to that word. And then secondarily, insofar as we're able, insofar as the Spirit gives us skill, to be able to articulate that and um, explain that in a way that is that is true. So hopefully that's been the exercise uh, for today. Now, we've got just a couple minutes left, so we may as well try to get to the end of this section. Let's... Um, Let's just pick back up at verse 6, noting the, the line immediate or previously quoted, they shall not enter my rest. Then he argues in verse 6, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, quote-unquote, this theological term, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, now what's this a reference to? When Joshua led the faithful, now, into the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, if this promised land was truly the promised land, then God would not have spoken of another day later on. So we see that the promised land is just a type of the promised land to come. And the rest that the faithful received by entering the promised land is just a type of that rest that we all receive entering um, the he our heavenly rest. That's This is the rhetoric. This is his argument. Okay, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And there I think you can see the argument um, tying into verse 3, the end, his works finished from the foundation of the world, that that seventh day of rest that God takes in Genesis, at the very foundation of the creation, is fulfilled, that is a type that is fulfilled in this rest of God and man at the end of the age. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Okay, now verse 11. Let us therefore strive, see the active language? He's just not embarrassed about it, so we shouldn't be either. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what then would we put that in Pauline terms? Crucify the old man with his sinful nature, with his unbelief, his disobedience. Crucify it. Why? That he may not overtake and strangle the new man and choke him out so that he can't enter that rest. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then you can see here, then, uh, just to round out this section, for the Word of God is living and active. Well, I think he's just quoted the Word of God a whole bunch. So I don't, as much as this is true generally, I think what he's talking about is this Word of God that he has just spoken, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Is that, is that something you can easily 
divide? We can hardly even distinguish between the two at all. What's the difference between a soul and a spirit? I don't know. And joints and marrow. Where is your marrow kept? In your joints. What's the, I, I think that's what he's doing. I think he's having a, you know, um, what, do you remember, um, what's that song? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Um, build me a, build me a, on the seashore between the salt water and the sea sand. What's the between? Um, uh, remember how he's in this song, um, this is uh, Simon and Garfunkel. He's talking about reaping with a sickle of, uh, with a sickle of leather. <laughs> how are you gonna, so, so he's just playing with all these paradoxes of all these ways you can speak and it actually is nonsense. You actually couldn't possibly do it. It's kind of a love song, remember? I think it's a she who's saying, yeah, have the, have the guy who loves me and wants to live, do all these impossible tasks. Oh, that's going to bother me, that first line. Anyway, um, yeah, so I think that this is what he's doing. He's doing the same thing. You can't, you can't actually distinguish, we can't actually distinguish between the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. Um, the word of God is so precise that even these things that would be impossible, nonsensical for us to try to distinguish, it can distinguish, he can distinguish. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what is he saying? I, I, yeah, in general, all the word of God, but especially in terms of his rhetoric, this word that I have just spoken to you, um, this divides. You either are apostate and you belong to those who do not believe, or um, you are a believer and you belong to the true Israel, who is marching toward the heavenly rest. I think that that's really the sense here. This same word, I love this because the word is depicted here as fully living, living and active, of course, in verse 12. And then here, discerning. We don't think of the scriptures as discerning, but they are. That's kind of a fun way to put it. I've said this for a long time. Um, when you read the scriptures, it's not so much that you're reading them as they're reading you. You've probably experienced something like that as you've read them. Convicting, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the scriptures, you might go in like, well, now what does this mean? Before you know it, it's like led you to repentance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. Now, notice what transition. We just said his sight, but what are we talking about? The Word of God. So you're free to say the Word or God. The Word of God. It's in interesting to ponder this as the person of Christ, as the Word of God. All right, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. All right, so there's no games being played. God is not mocked. There's no God is not deceived. And that's really the whole point. So... What is the point? Oh, well, I can, I can be of Israel and not believe God and just claim that, hey, I'm saved or I don't have to listen because I'm part of Israel. I'm part of the church. I've got baptism. I've got the Lord's Supper. I've got whatever. And this whole rhetorical section is like, God sees right through you. Are you nuts? This is so that you'll believe and be saved. And this is the day of salvation. This is the day to enter his rest. All right. That's where we've been so far. We'll pick up next week, chapter 4, verse 14. The Lord be with you.